Hello and welcome to the World Resources Institute podcast. I'm Nicholas Walton and this is the second in a series looking at how we can build back better following the COVID-19 crisis. This is a shortened version of the webinar on how the US can shape its stimulus package, hosted by WRI's Dan Lashoff. The expert perspectives are from Devashri Saha, Richard Kaufman, Kathy Zoy, Chris Castro and Lauren Faber. This is uh, truly an unprecedented moment in American history. Public health experts expect tens of thousands of additional fatalities uh, are likely, even if we adhere extremely well to the physical distancing measures uh, that that are in place throughout most of the country. While those uh, measures are clearly necessary and are showing early signs of slowing the spread of the disease, They are also having a massive impact on our economy. Uh, In just the last two weeks of March, over 10 million Americans filed for unemployment benefits. Congress has responded in an unprecedented manner as well, passing three emergency measures. The scale of this legislation is larger than anything enacted since World War II, and yet there's growing agreement that even more needs to be done. After that, Speaker Pelosi and President Trump have both signaled support for a major investment in infrastructure uh, to reboot and strengthen the economy once Americans are able to return to work. So what could the central elements of an effort to not only get people back to work as quickly as possible, but also lay the groundwork for the clean energy transition that we must make to avert the worst consequences of climate change? While the situation is vastly different now, our closest historical analog is the 2009 American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, representing just over 10% of the total, the Recovery Act's $90 billion of clean energy investments remains the single largest clean energy investment in American history. And while by no means perfect, it was in fact a great success. It supported 900,000 job years between 2009 and 2015 spread across renewable energy, energy efficiency, and transportation and industry. And these sectors have importantly continued to grow since the spending from the Recovery Act ended. Shortly, we'll hear from Richard Kaufman and Kathy Zoy, both of whom were directly involved in implementing parts of the Recovery Act at the Department of Energy. But first, I want to ask my colleague Devashri Saha to provide an overview of WRI's recommended priorities for building back better. So uh, good morning, everyone. Thanks for joining us. The economic downturn caused by COVID-19 has focused political attention on economic recovery and jobs retention and creation. As trillions of uh, dollars are being spent to stimulate the economy, the question before us is, can we direct this investment in a manner that not only creates opportunities for a revival of economic activity and job creation, but also leads to the creation of a more uh, sustainable and resilient economy in the future? We have a lot of skilled, unemployed workers We have a backlog of investment in infrastructure and a looming climate crisis. So given these combination of factors, this is truly an opportunity to not only rebuild the economy, but also build it back better than it was before. 
So let me turn to a few examples of investment in low carbon infrastructure, which can not only get people back to work as quickly as possible, but also lay the groundwork for the clean energy transition. So let me start with uh, energy efficiency. This sector is already America's job creation uh, powerhouse. We employ uh, uh, 2.4 million American workers in this sector, and this is the fastest growing part of the energy sector. Retrofitting the millions of homes and businesses across the country can play a leading role in putting Americans back to work. These are going to be local jobs in every part of the country and in sectors like construction and manufacturing, which have been specially hard hit during this time. And according to uh, one uh, study, every 1 million investment creates approximately eight full-time jobs in energy efficiency, which is uh, nearly three times the number of jobs created in the fossil fuel sector. Moving on uh, to uh, smart grid, research has shown that every 1 billion of US transmission investment can uh, generate 2.4 billion in total economic activity in addition to creating thousands of uh, full-time uh, jobs. I also want to talk about uh, public transit and we all know that the public transit system is crucial for access to jobs and other opportunities. So it kind of makes sense to increase federal spending uh, to make smart investments in zero emission public transportation system. And this can actually provide a significant boost to the US economy at this uh, crucial time. Finally, I want to turn to uh, this important priority related to tree restoration. WRI research has shown that if this effort is sustained, 60 billion trees can be restored to the landscape and this has the potential to remove 500 million tons of CO2 per year from the atmosphere, which is going to be a major effort uh, in our um, climate change initiatives. Now let's get a perspective from Richard Kaufman. Uh, he is currently chairman of the New York State Energy Research and Development Administration and a fellow at Columbia University. So uh, Richard, uh, we're looking forward to your comments. So the 2009 Recovery Act did a lot to advance clean energy, and there are many lessons to be drawn. And here are three best lessons and three less than best that ought to inform the next effort of clean energy infrastructure spending. So on the less than best, ARA spent money across many initiatives, from innovation to grants to manufacturers, to weatherization, to transportation, to worker training, carbon sequestration, and renewable energy deployment but spreading the money around like this didn't always create critical mass. So as an example, ARA spent $3.4 billion on the smart grid, 3.4 billion, against a total needed of around 500 billion. Because of the concern the government intervention should be short-lived, some of the activities weren't given enough money to achieve self-sufficiency. On the best lessons, Funds spent on deployment continue to pay dividends, since with greater deployment, costs declined, which have continued to spur a greater deployment even today. Another best lesson is that the funds distributed through states were often effective. Projects are local, and capability of states 
to implement clean energy programs have actually improved since 2009 as the federal government activities have lagged. And the last best lesson is that a number of policies leverage private sector capital. So building on these lessons, here are three stimulus ideas. The first idea, we should take this opportunity to make a major step forward to build the smart grid. We need a dynamic two-way grid that can accommodate much more renewables, EVs, electrification of heat, and the ability to optimize billions of devices that should be connected to the grid. $100 billion would be about 20% of the costs. It would be a large enough commitment so that substantial customer benefits can be demonstrated. And once demonstrated, subsequent funding, the remaining say 400 billion, can be taken on by state regulators and utilities. The second idea, much of the distributed parts of the grid are financed through competitive markets, not through utility balance sheets. Smaller solar storage projects and efficiency projects have had difficulty get, getting debt financing even before the virus. Their problem is not the cost of debt, it's simply the availability of that debt. And that's why a number of states and cities have set up their green banks to offer loans to smaller clean energy projects. Green banks don't generally compete with private sector banks. In fact, they do the work to incubate financing structures and to create enough scale so that private lenders can eventually take over the opportunity. The third idea, let's make a commitment to retrofit the many millions of multifamily housing units in the US. Much of it is energy inefficient, uncomfortable, and unhealthy. That creates an opportunity to build a new industry of standardized manufactured components, windows, walls, HVAC, that can be assembled on site without tenants needing to leave their apartments. These three ideas build a bridge to self-sustaining, better energy infrastructure that will achieve transformational scale. Richard, thank you. Uh, now it gives me great pleasure to introduce Kathy Zoy. Kathy is the CEO of EVGO, the largest fast charging network in the United States. The whole US economy last year had about $21 trillion of GDP. And so I thought about like, if we're going to move more money towards the sector that we care most about and ensure that we've got a dovetailing of getting the economy back along with moving us into a clean energy economy. What are the sectors that matter to us? Well, of course, the energy economy is straight up is about a trillion dollars. So it's about, about a fifth of, of GDP every year. In addition to that, though, you think about other key sectors that are important for this transition, and, and cars is one of them. I mean, cars comprise 3% of US GDP every year. There are more manufacturing jobs in the automobile sector than in any other manufacturing sector. About a million people are directly making cars last year. Another million work in dealerships associated with that. And what the economists tell us is that the flow-on effect, the indirect jobs that come from a healthy automobile economy in the US, are 10 to 14 million. It's not just the opportunities to clean up our transportation sector, but that's one of the reasons that there's so much emphasis across the political aisle in making sure that our car sector is healthy. The other sector, which again, also dovetails with what Richard was talking about, is housing. 
it turns out that housing comprises about 15% of US GDP in a good year. And what we're really trying to do here is accelerate adoption of non-polluting climate-friendly technologies and services and use the stimulus to get that done fast. The good news is that we've done this well, and, and Richard mentioned it, Dan mentioned it, in the Recovery Act that was passed in 2009 and implemented in the early part of the Obama administration, we were able to put policies in place that had a huge impact on solar, on wind, on batteries, and on lighting. There's been a lot of research that's been done that has shown that with a combination of activities to invest to accelerate that transition to majority markets, we, we were able to be effective. What I'd like to point out, though, is that it's not simply, we tend to think of these buckets of money going toward directly supporting these technologies. Well, that's true. That's part of it. But it's actually an ecosystem of policies that really, really gets the job done. I mean, I put them in four major buckets, which are grants and loans, tax incentives and tax penalties, carrots and sticks on the tax side, target standards and codes, which aren't necessarily buckets of money, but can be instrumental in moving markets forward. And then finally, information and marketing. There are so many other things that we should talk about as we think about what were the good and the less than good lessons from the Recovery Act. But what I'd like to turn to now just quickly is some of my favorite must-haves for where we are right now. I run EVgo, which is the largest public fast charging company in the United States. We had been operating under a forecast where we were going to get to 5 million EVs on, the, on US roads by 2025. What that necessitates is roughly 45,000 fast chargers to be built and about 500,000 level twos that are a slower charge, but that can work well for workplaces where, where you're going to have your car for a long time. What car companies will tell you, and the, and the OEMs have announced that they, they're investing more than $300 billion to electrify their fleets. We want them to stay that course. But what they say is the only way that we're going to have the technology adoption to EV really be successful is if... We've got low-cost batteries, so the cars are affordable. Well, that's actually happening. We've seen that. The second thing that the car companies will tell you is that the cars have to have a range that's more than a couple hundred miles. Again, we have those cars coming to market now and many choices. The third thing they will tell you, though, is um, Americans will not buy EVs unless they feel comfortable that they'll be able to charge them everywhere. So having ubiquitous charging infrastructure is a linchpin to electrification of transportation. So what will it take in terms of a public investment through a stimulus to get to that nominally this 45,000 DC fast chargers and 500,000 public level two chargers, it's about $10 billion. You know, it's not the same amount of money that's required to totally modernize our, our grid as Richard talked about, but it's a really, really important cornerstone. Second thing, again, dovetailing with what Richard said, um, housing. We have a severe housing shortage. When you have a sector that's 15% of GDP like housing is, actually making sure that when we using the stimulus to jumpstart the housing builds and to do it sustainably with energy efficiency built in, with distributed generation, with storage, and with charging infrastructure built into multi-unit um, dwellings, critically important. The final point that I would make is that the way to get this done well is through public-private partnerships. Having government money seed and, and release private sector capital from the sidelines by de-risking it in volatile times like this is critically important. We saw this in the Recovery Act, and I think we'll see it now again. And again, I would just echo Richard's suggestion that having this money be managed and distributed and administered at the state level, you're closer to the ground, and it will, be, it will allow for agility and um, a great success in moving it quickly. We're going to turn to a local perspective now. 
Uh, we're really fortunate to have uh, Chris Castro, who is the um, Chief Sustainability Officer in Orlando and uh, Senior Advisor to Orlando Mayor Buddy Dyer. First of all, thank you, Dan, and to, to all of the other panelists. It's quite an honor to be on this panel, and I really appreciate WRI bringing us together to kind of forecast how we could build back better and uh, bringing in the local government context. The city of Orlando uh, is one of the fastest growing cities in the country. We're seeing between 1,000 and 1,500 people moving every single week to our city, uh, not to mention the amount of tourism that we saw last year. And we do see the opportunity that future stimulus could have on expanding upon the work that the Recovery Act did. And so I wanna run through a few of those scenarios that were really beneficial for the city of Orlando. The first is um, the focus on the EECBG block grants, the Energy Efficiency and Conservation Block Grants, which in local governments across this country really spurred energy efficiency retrofits in homes and commercial buildings and really helped modernize the overall infrastructure that we had. The city of Orlando decided to invest $1.75 million of those funds into retrofitting our own city buildings. And we saw really good returns on that, usually less than five years and an annual savings of 250 to 300,000 with that investment. And what it helped us to do was make the case for one of the largest municipal green bonds in the country. Shortly after uh, the retrofits of the Recovery Act, we passed the $17.5 million municipal green bond. And it helped us to now go back into 55 additional city facilities that got lighting retrofits and building automation and control systems and other HVAC improvements that are now yielding significant savings. Now we're seeing over 2 million per year in annual avoided costs. In addition, this also spurred this notion around an ecosystem of policies and programs for energy efficiency. And what we identified was that there were other market triggers that we needed to implement to really create a, a robust market for efficiency in the built environment. The last thing I'll mention here is workforce development and training. And I think there's a tremendous opportunity to retrain some of the individuals who are currently unemployed and get them equipped with um, heading into the clean energy economy. Moving forward to dovetail on what Kathy was alluding to regarding housing, I think that there's a tremendous opportunity around addressing the affordable housing crisis that we're facing in this country. What we've tried to do is expand our weatherization programs. And I think there's a true opportunity here of doing that with another stimulus really targeting some of our low and moderate income uh, households and incorporating requirements when we're allocating HUD funding, whether it's CDBG, whether it's SHIP or home funds, which are both state programs in the state of Florida, to help us to renovate uh, some of these homes with more uh, efficient appliances and equipment. In Florida, solar was the fastest growing job in both 2018 and 2019. Uh, so a lot of opportunity there. The last area in citywide renewables I'll mention is expanding RD and research development and deployment of, of clean tech innovations. We're fortunate here in Orlando that we have a Florida Solar Energy Center, essentially the Clean Energy Resource Institute for the state. Last topic I'll talk about and turn it back over is EV readiness, restoring and expanding credits for charging infrastructure and uh, vehicles is, is a big deal. I do think that the focus on helping public transit accelerate the deployment of electric buses is a tremendous opportunity that we have ahead of us. Thanks, Chris. One uh, additional local perspective I want to turn to now is Lauren Faber, who's the Chief Sustainability Officer in Los Angeles. And of course, Los Angeles is, I think, the, the leading electric bus program in the United States, has a very diverse 
uh, population and a very uh, a strong climate action plan. So Lauren, if you could just share a, a few observations about you know, both the uh, opportunities and challenges you're seeing in Los Angeles and where you think a, a stimulus investment would make the, the biggest difference for you. You know, we sort of boil it down in terms of infrastructure, how those intersect with our climate goals through what the mayor calls the five zeros. So it's a zero carbon grid, zero carbon buildings, zero carbon transportation, zero waste, and zero wasted water. And within all of those areas where we really do need to get to either 100% renewable energy or decarbonize those systems, those are major infrastructure investments that themselves, you know, we've been able to see in Los Angeles alone bring significant benefits in terms of job creation throughout the supply chain and also equity and health improvement. Transportation need not say much more about the air pollution impacts, the air quality improvements, but also the health improvements of getting people out of their personal vehicles. And then on zero waste, really exciting opportunity where we are, we're literally creating markets that don't exist anymore. So when you think about um, uh, economic opportunity in waste, you know, we are as a city paying many more millions of dollars for someone else to take and deal with our recyclable, otherwise recyclable waste uh, than we used to receive as revenue for um, exporting that material to uh, recycling centers. So it's a significant pull and drain on resources for cities all around the country and investment in local infrastructure to um, pick up those recycling markets would have significant benefits. And then on the water side as well, we're moving towards uh, zero wasted water, as I said, where we're going to have 100% of our water recycled in Los Angeles. And that's requiring increasing our local water infrastructure to be able to do that. Looking at what the workforce needs and opportunities are as we are moving from high carbon intensity industries to cleaner industries. The boom and bust of the tax credits for renewable energy are very real and affect our, our ability to meet our goals, our effect on our ability to build in the infrastructure. We're spending $8 billion in grid upgrades just over the next three years, and we expect that to support 45,000 jobs in Los Angeles. The use of standards is an extremely helpful and important way to make sure that the pace that we need to see the adoption rate of that really depends on local, state, and federal mandates and targets, and that plays a really important role as well. A number of questions have touched on the equity issues, things like uh, electric vehicles, rooftop solar are often characterized as uh, benefits for uh, more affluent people, and we know that air pollution affects low-income people of color uh, most severely. The uh, COVID virus just exacerbates some of those differences. Um, so what do we know about how to make sure that the kind of clean energy investments we're talking about actually uh, improve equity uh, rather than exacerbate the uh, income disparities that we see? I wouldn't be surprised that in the next uh, couple of years, we are going to see trillions of dollars of you know, U.S. household wealth being wiped out. So as the recovery process takes hold, if the bottom half of the population is disproportionately hit and if they do not benefit equitably from uh, the subsequent recovery, uh, that's going to be a recipe for more inequality and more social unrest. 
And I also worry that people might, might not want to prioritize climate action uh, at those times. So the good thing is that a lot of the investments that we are talking about in, you know, weatherization or you know, public transit investments, they can also be very equity enhancing. Thinking about weatherization programs for you know, low income households, they can you know, save at least a few hundred dollars annually on utility bills. Prioritizing programs like this is going to be uh, really important and uh, we have to put equity and um, social justice issues front and uh, center as we think about potential stimulus programs. You know, the issue about uh, equity, there are lots of them, but a, a couple of points is that we, we still, with our current grid, have a lot of power plants located in communities where they have disproportionate health problems associated with those fossil fuel plants. So the more that we can build a grid that has more renewables, that will have health benefits. But beyond that, utility bills are essentially, you know, quite regressive. And so when we burden the cost, the very modest costs we're already spending to try to modernize the grid in the utility rate base, we're making people with lower incomes pay more and more. And, and that's not right. And the last point I'll make is when we talk about the ability to do retrofits on housing, we're really talking about trying to make smart houses too that can be mini energy centers that helps change the economics of doing a lot of retrofits. And so, again, without having a smart grid that can, that can optimize those kinds of solutions, it deprives uh, a revenue stream to help make more and more retrofits economic. The only addition I would really have is I think at the high level, in the city of Orlando, we have MWBE requirements, minority and women-owned business requirements, and that can help enhance, obviously, employment. And when it comes down to affordability, and getting yourself out of a current poverty situation. It's all about employment and jobs and your ability to sustain yourself. And the more that we require uh, money to go towards MWBE, the more those jobs will increase and hopefully the more that people will be lifted out of their current burdens and situation. Uh, why don't we start on this question of, of job quality? Because I think sometimes the idea of jobs in energy efficiency or renewables are presented as a substitute for fossil fuel jobs, which uh, uh, inevitably will decline as we transition to a clean energy economy. Um, but there's questions about wages, uh, about whether the efficiency jobs are permanent versus temporary, uh, and, and then what could we do different going forward? Yes, yeah, so when, when we were implementing the weatherization assistance program, and that was a $5 billion program, the basic weatherization activities were caulking, weather stripping, some attic insulation. There's some training required, but they were not super high skilled. When it comes to tuning up air conditioning and that sort of thing, that requires a higher level of skill of, of somebody who's a tradesman who understands HVAC systems. My biggest disappointment with the weatherization assistance program is what Richard said, which was because it was the ramp up was based solely on a bucket of money, there was no investment made in ensuring that there was a continual project flow after WAP ended. Those were good jobs, but they kind of fell off a cliff when the money stopped. So what we need, what I would like us to be mindful of this go round is ensuring that we're making an investment in building up a sector that can carry on because surely we didn't complete the need for weatherizing low income people's homes. And yet the work kind of stopped afterwards. Again, so many questions, but uh, an important one uh, from one 
participant here about mid-sized cities, um, which is a really important part uh, of the U.S. economy and uh, and emissions, uh, and the concern that the congressional aid has really been directed so far only to large cities over 500,000. I, I do think that there's a really important point to be made uh, that philanthropy has stepped in over the course of the last five to 10 years or so to help spur some of this work at the mid and small scale city level, as well as large scale. Uh, we think about the City Energy Project and the American Cities Climate Challenge now that's up and running. I, and I do think that it's important that we work through our states and with the federal government to ensure that those funds are being released to all size cities and targeting those that have uh, significant carbon output, Orlando being one of those, um, because of not just our population, but the tourism as well. And that was Chris Castro ending a special podcast on how the US can build back better following the COVID-19 crisis. You can find the full audiovisual recording from the webinar, including slides, on the events page at WRI.org. That's where you can also find upcoming Build Back Better webinars, along with the first in the series, which gave a more general perspective. You can, of course, catch them all on the WRI podcast, available wherever you download yours. I'm Nicholas Walton. Thanks for listening.